This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between. How are But I am very, very well. I am actually recording this ahead of time today. So I am actually right now probably in bed doing nothing at this point. And well, this comes out at 6 o'clock in the morning central, so 7 o'clock eastern. So I might be up at this point. But I am actually in Miami for the weekend, so I have a conference to attend to with a lot of, you know, different people who I've known for a while but have never actually met in person, which is, you know, kind of just the bizarre way that we live in this world now. So I am actually in Miami right now, so I'm recording this on Monday, the Monday before this. So I kind of worked all weekend to really get this post and this podcast hammered out. And I wanted to, and I was on kind of a roll with doing it already, so I wanted to make sure that everything sounded good, everything looked good, and everything checked out before I went out and kind of just did my thing out there. So um, anyways, this is a post that I've, thought about a lot recently and I kind of got really moved over the edge by a conversation I listened to that's going to actually open this intro of the podcast in a, in a little bit. But I had been thinking about this and a lot of people have been thinking about this for a while. Like what is kind of the genesis of a lot of things that we're seeing right now? I've watched a lot of documentaries on this. I, I've listened to a lot of conversations on this. And I think that there is a relatively common thread to most of the stuff that happens, but we can really never tell. I don't think anyone can tell. I mean, I'm not that smart, but I don't really think anyone can really pinpoint an exact thing. I think it's multiple things. But I think it comes down to really one core theme of everything else, which we've talked about a lot, but we'll kind of hit on in this specific context in a sense. And I think that we're all kind of, whenever something like you know a catastrophic thing in society happens, a bad thing in society happens, we're always asking ourselves, why did this happen? Why do these people do this? Everything else, what can we do to help kind of put everything back together? All that kind of stuff. So I think it's a very interesting dynamic at play for a lot of reasons. And I think that's really kind of good, what going to be, excuse me, what we're exploring today. And so without further ado, let's get right into it. There is perhaps no more important discussion that you can have with than one positioned around belief. The act of hoping, knowing, and thinking that something is greater than you is a very powerful thing. For many of us, it is the only thing. We crave it. We need it. We can't live without it. We have to use it in order to survive. The opposite of belief horrifies us. Nihilism, the act of believing in nothing, even though that is indeed believing in something, but that's neither here nor there, is unbelievably terrifying to try to comprehend. Human beings are wired for certainty. We don't do well when we don't have something to anchor our values in. We need something at the center of our universe. If we don't have anything, we can descend into madness. 
But madness, as Heath Ledger's Joker said, is like gravity. There is something that is innately attractive about it. I'm of the belief that all human beings are attracted to things that are unique. When someone at work doesn't toe the company line, we pay attention to them in an attempt to discover why. When someone is defiant on social media about something going on in the world, we tune in to see what they have to say and if it has merit. When your wife suddenly gets your libido back after giving birth and wants to shove a bizarrely shaped object in one of your previously uncharted orifices, you ponder as to what could possibly be driving her newfound pleasure-seeking. So given that context, the best person who can talk about both nihilism and shoving bizarre objects up his ass is the one and only Tim Dillon. In January of 2021, Tim Dillon was invited on Lex Friedman's podcast for the first time. This was, in many ways, bizarre. Lex Friedman, for those who don't know, is a universally renowned researcher and scientist in the fields of both artificial intelligence and robotics. He's a professor at MIT. His IQ orbits somewhere around that of 50,000. His wildly popular podcast is usually a very niche genre. He interviews people like him. Experts, historians, scientists, all people of the like. But Lex Friedman is more than just a glorified nerd who likes to build robot dogs. Lex Friedman is a very intentionally curious person. He enjoys who he calls, quote, the crazy ones, people that are crafting culture in the form of expressive art. One of his heroes and best friends is Joe Rogan, who is the epitome of that description. Joe Rogan has said repeatedly that Tim Dillon is one of the most important comics and cultural figures of our time. So, taking this recommendation from his friend, Lex Friedman had Dillon, perhaps the craziest of the crazy ones, on his podcast to talk about, in his words, quote, comedy, power, conspiracy theories, and freedom. The podcast that transpired was one of the most interesting interviews I'd ever heard on a podcast. The two men could, on paper, be not more of an inverse from, or could, be, could not be more of an inverse from one another. But the conversation that resulted was absolutely explosive. The chemistry was magnetic. The two instantly fell in love with talking with one another. Friedman enjoyed the conversation so much that he proposed to Tim Dillon on Twitter. Dylan said, yes, the wedding is soon to come, I've heard. This podcast is, in my opinion, the greatest example of what makes Tim Dillon the funniest comedian in America. And this is no small statement. Tim Dillon has been on the Joe Rogan experience around 10 times. He has over 300 episodes of his own podcast. He constantly does tours where he pops in and does various spots on others of all types. So what specifically about this conversation with Lex Friedman proved to be so enlightening? And to me, the answer is very simple. If you had to pin one central theme of what Lex Friedman talks about, that theme would be human nature. If you had to pin one central theme of what Tim Dillon talks about, that theme would be nihilism. As mentioned earlier, those two themes, when combined, make for quite the explosive combination. And throughout the more than two-hour-long podcast, Lex Friedman and Tim Dillon talked about the elegant dance between belief and non-belief, between hope and nihilism. It was a messy but elegant description of many of the things that are currently happening right now. Remember the big thing that happened in January 2021, the one where people in Viking costumes and face paint who thought that Hillary Clinton was eating kids' asses in the basement of Pizza Hut entered the Capitol building? That was one of the things discussed. So was the massive rise in the neo-terrorist movements of Antifa and BLM. In short, in discussion this, this trend, this tug-and-pull between belief and nihilism, Dylan and Friedman were able to find out that all of us, no matter what we think of the QAnon crazies of the BLM radical leftist nutcases, have been trying to answer. Why do bad things happen? We hear people all the time talking about how we need to, quote, solve problems. More often than that, especially now, we hear these same people calling for the need to, quote, hold people accountable. With our modern-day McCarthyism on display so often, we've seen a massive uptick in these incidents. They come from all over the place and all different types of issues. 
there is a massive demand and a seemingly endless amount of supply. However, there is one question that needs to be asked, and one that isn't nearly talked about enough. Why does no one actually do any of these things? For all the, quote, recurring problems in society, shouldn't they not be recurring if people were actually serious about fixing them? Simple deductive reasoning and logic would tell you that no, they, they aren't. Lots of things have been labeled systemic recently, from housing prices to racism. This begs yet another question. Why are we talking about creating the same system with different outcomes when we know that the outcomes will be the same anyways? Again, that pre the people that preach this obscenely backwards ideology cannot answer these questions. They just keep talking about problems, letting them happen, preaching their desired choir when they do happen, and then go about complaining again. It's a vicious cycle. It hurts a lot of people, particularly the more helpless and weak among us. It's not an act of outrage. It's an act of cowardice. But why cowardice? Let's look at the definition for an explanation. The definition of the word cowardice, according to the dictionary, is, quote, lack of courage or firmness of purpose. Now think about that for a second. We're not talking about small things. These are not minor patterns and trends. These are very large events, ranging all the way from COVID to January 6th to Uvalde. These last three years have seen a lot of shit, and we still got a sixth of that time left to go. All of the narratives that have been parroted by our ruling and expert classes and reinforced by the mob that obeys them, this is the, perhaps the biggest one that doesn't give enough press. And to be fair, it's not just the people we've named that do this. I'm certainly guilty of it, much more than I would like to admit. And we all are. Human beings are very cognizant of things that are wrong and voicing our opinions on them. However, we all seem to stumble on this whole, quote, solving part of the things that seem to go wrong. And there's a reason for this as well. Many of these problems, as we can probably guess, can be solved with an honest and simple root cause analysis. Keep digging until you hit something. Find out about what actually is creating a certain thing to happen. Look at it and feel it, no matter how much it hurts. Learn about it. Become smarter. Handle yourself better. Share knowledge. Help to instruct and inspire everyone that is in fact affected by it in best practices to help alleviate the suffering that it causes. It's not that hard. Human beings, as related to this, are simultaneously very smart and very stupid. It's all a matter of choice of who we choose to be when faced with this situation. The reason that this root cause is not done, however, is what we will try to tackle in this post. So much can be avoided if we look at problems honestly. So much suffering would cease. So many people would be getting lied to less. Many more would benefit because of that. Ripple effects are powerful things. The cause of not doing root cause, of not looking at how awful things could happen, is simple. They don't want to take responsibility for their actions in creating them. We'll get to the reasons for this lack of responsibility later on, but this is clearly and unequivocally what the cause of most awful problems is. No one wants to talk about things. And when things like these go unsaid, when you bottle them up, when you hide them in the fog, the consequences that happen as a result later on are absolutely disastrous. They're cataclysmic. But the people who keep them bottled up don't care. They don't take responsibility for the simple reason of not wanting to see the damage they cause and will continue to create. This phenomenon happens across institutions, society, and our personal lives. It raises hell and wreaks havoc in all of them. Almost nothing is worse than a problem that is left unattended. They may start small, but they have a strange but not uncommon tendency to grow into monsters. And contrary to what you might tell your children, we should always be afraid of monsters. But this is not a singular problem, either. Like most things in life, it's a duality. There are two parties that are contributing to this problem. They each have a different motive for their participation and a special hatred of the other side that they are ironically working towards to make things like these happen. 
When these two forces are combined, they make for an incredibly toxic mixture, one that will inevitably, inevitably lead to an explosion that destroys everything that, also ironically, they are most trying, likely trying to help. It's a bizarre situation, but that is what the situation is nonetheless. The goal going forward will be to identify the two parties that are colluding to cause our lack of root cause, and from there, get to the bottom of what is actually causing all the grandiose-style tragedy we've seen in the last few years to bear its horrendous fruit at the expense of our livelihoods and society. Let's begin. To gain proper footing on how to solve a problem, it would be wise to first start with what we've forgotten. Part 1. The Forgotten I've repeatedly talked about my love for Sons of Anarchy. It's one of the great and most tragic shows of our time. It's remarkably insightful into the raw nature of how human beings function from all ways of life that end up truly mattering. It's so much more than a Shakespearean tale disguised in the leather jackets of a rogue biker gang from Northern California. It's a story of the human spirit. It's one that the humans that watch it or have heard of it, no matter how much they might not want to, or they might want to, excuse me, cannot help to look away from. Kurt Sutter, the creator of the Epic series, wasn't done, however. Four years later, Mayans MC, the spinoff focused on the primary rival of the Sons of Anarchy, was released to the world. While taking a different vantage point from the sense of the primary characters and their role in the fictional world, the themes of the show are relatively the same. There was a strong emphasis on brotherhood, family, and tribalism. There were characters that were so deeply traumatized that the only way they could cope was to inflict that trauma onto others so that they could share their pain. There were horrifying incidents of violence. Much different, but also much the same. Except for one thing. The Mayans, a Latino biker gang, is deeply tied into Mexico from numerous perspectives. Some of them have roots there. The gang is intertwined with one of the most major cartels and helps them run, dr run drugs throughout the southern United States. They are, for lack of a better phrase, unable to fully escape and become independent from the happenings of what goes on below the southern border, and in many ways, they don't want to be. Mexico, as many of you are probably aware, is largely a failed state. Its government, although admirable in their attempts to legitimize some of their dealings, is secondary to who actually runs the country. The real weight of what happens throughout the country is thrown around by the aforementioned drug cartels, who use a shitload of fear, influence, and money to get things done to enhance their own political gains. They're involved in frequent and vicious wars over drugs and turf, and they're incredibly brutal about how they wage them. Unfortunately, a group that is unaccounted for often bears the weight of how dysfunctional Mexico is run. The common people. This is who always suffers from the people in power incompetent and malevolent. The people who they're supposed to be serving, the citizenry, never get served. Instead, they get suffering spoon-fed to them until they choke on it. They're waterboarded by a seemingly endless stream of misery until it forces them to go unconscious. Although it's currently not being talked about due to mainstream and social media not amplifying it, there is something significant going on in the world right now. Populism is sweeping the globe. Massive protests of citizens against their ruling classes are revolting due to things like basic freedoms, green energy, and overall condescension being taken place in the mainstream. We've seen the peaceful side of this with the demonstration of Dutch farmers in the Netherlands. We've seen the not-so-peaceful side of this with the complete toppling of the government by the uprising in Sri Lanka. Both can work. Both have worked. It's only a matter of how far the people that are being tread upon are pushed, and how far they are willing to go in return to right those perceived wrongs. 
In Mayans, the group in Mexico that is pushing back is called Los Olvidados. Los Olvidados is a counterterrorism group run by a woman named Adelita, who had her family brutally executed in front of her as a child. She, like many who have joined the ranks of this militia, are fed up with the way that their nation is being dragged through the mud and their people being forced to bend at their knees. They fight back using horrifying methods. Their members, some of them including very small children, beat, injure, kill, and torture members of the cartels to make them suffer for what they've done and continue to do. They videotape these deeds and post them online to circulate their carnage in an attempt to wage a war of attrition. It's a bloody and horrendous business. However, it is the name of Los Olvidados, more specifically what it translates to in English, that is the important part. No matter how many cartel members they harm, no matter how many videos they release, no matter how much damage they cause to the fraudulent infrastructure that runs Mexico while harming Mexicans tenfold, it is the name that inflicts the greatest pain. As they say, the pen is truly mightier than the sword, and the translated name of Los Olvidados is what really cuts deep. The Forgotten The real power behind Los Olvidados, the real reason that they're a serious threat to the power structures that hold on to Mexico by a thread, is that they are forgotten. It's not just a group fighting back against the corrupt and powerful. It's a symbol. It's a blatant finger to their ruling class about the people in suburban and rural Mexico that are done and being fed up with being tread upon by both the quasi-government, the cartels, and the actual instituted Mexican government. They've had enough. They're sick of being told what to do by people that harm them. They want blood. They want revenge. A lot has been made of the quote, forgotten man persona recently. There has been many people from minority groups to QAnon crazies that have been described themselves this way. What you think about each group is mostly irrelevant. But what is not irrelevant is the feeling. The forgotten man has not been made so popular for no reason. As someone who comes from the quote, forgotten part of America, the Midwest, I can tell people that it's a very real thing. It's a very real for lots of different people for lots of different reasons. The key, as mentioned, is the feeling of abandonment. We've all felt it before, and we don't like it. We particularly despise it when we feel like it's an intentional act imposed against us. When we feel that, the that someone who should be looking out for our better interests is doing the exact opposite, we don't just feel upset. We feel betrayed. Betrayal, as we've all experienced, is one of, if not the most, painful emotions that you can ever feel. The reason, in my estimation, is because it shatters our version of what the truth of our lives was or what we thought it was. If your girlfriend cheats on you, you realize that you were made an idiot of. If your boss sexually harasses you at work, you realize that all those compliments he made were made for other reasons than to be known as a contributor in the organization. If you find out that your dad is a closeted alcoholic, the man who was once your hero becomes downgraded to a lowly and pathetic degenerate. But there's another common thread we must analyze, a bigger thread, one that runs through all of American society, when a group of people feels that they've been betrayed, this is a whole different situation. One individual person is small. They certainly have the power to inspire people and do some things on their own. But numbers matter. The more people that are unified in something, the more inertia and power that something becomes, and has. It's not just banned political science and abstract sociology. It's physics. We have seen this trend manifest in, quite literally, every single major disturbing upheaval of society recently. The pattern is the same for all of them. A group of people feels tread upon by another group of people. Those people are pushed very far into uncomfortable terrain. Those people eventually reach a breaking point. And, finally, when that breaking point happens, 
It is then projected upon everyone else in incredibly charged and often vicious fashion. This group, whatever it turns out to be, takes on the persona of the, quote, oppressed in society. They all have similar traits. They all have a legitimate grievance. They all can see people who can fix the legitimate grievance do the exact opposite than what the will of the people would actually like them to do. And, finally, they all take irrational and oftentimes outrageously over-the-top action and attempt to, quote, right the people that have, quote, wronged them. The hilariously ignorant thing about this trend in our culture is that every group that does this thinks that groups other than them are wrong for doing so. I don't think our aforementioned friends from QAnon took very kindly the BLM protests and riots that took place in the summer of 2020 any more than they took to them storming the Capitol in January of 2021. But the reality of the situation is that they're both the same. They both have all the common traits running through them. Let's go through the framework with each. The people who supported QAnon had a legitimate grievance with the ruling class in America. They didn't see the ruling class in America do anything to fix that grievance. They reached a breaking point with the confusion around the election voting in 2020. Then they exploded when they stormed the Capitol. Black Lives Matter is a neo-Marxist organization that weaponized black people in America and warped their minds by focusing on the obviously horrendous issue of police brutality in America. They had a legitimate grievance with how black folks were discriminated against by law enforcement officials, and were even more pissed when seemingly nothing was done to fix the problem. They reached a breaking point when George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin. They then exploded when they saw an opportunity to upend the system and change things. It's the same formula, you see. Both groups were obviously very wrong to do what they did. However, we cannot ignore the context of the situation, either, because they both matter. Their side of the story must be told, as must everyone else's, no matter what you think of them as a whole. There are two sides to every coin and two sides to every story. Additionally, there are also two sides to how we treat these group of people. These groups of people, excuse me. We can look on them with sympathy and empathize their legitimate grievances. That is the way it should be done, especially when we don't completely understand their pain. We never can completely, but we try to meet them where they are. But the opposite way is always worse. And the opposite, in this case, is who the forgotten blame for all of their problems. Part 2. The Virtuous Our culture is one fueled, sadly, by excess and outrage. Nary a day goes by without something new for people to stress unnecessarily over and fawn pity upon. It becomes a newly invoked religious practice of sorts. An event happens, and the group of people who succumb, no matter what belief system they hold, pray to their pagan gods and goddesses of modern culture to help alleviate that problem. They chant incantations by typing to their laptops and iPhones, they scrawl modern-day hieroglyphics by putting words behind hashtags. Sometimes, when they're really getting into their feels, they become possessed by a demonic presence and scream towards the heavens, questioning their imaginary gods as to why they, of all people, are so forsaken. Not many things in our culture, no matter how many stressed or unnecessarily outraged, provoke the last type of response. However, there are the rare occasions in which this breaks through in a glorious display of incoherent drivel and insanity. Those exceptions are notable not only for the responses themselves, but for the people who shout those responses into the world. Demographics do matter in certain situations. And in this case, they tell us a lot. 
When Roe v. Wade was overturned by the United States Supreme Court earlier this summer, everyone, no matter what they thought of the issue of abortion rights in America, cringed. This one was going to sting. And they were all right. The powder keg that had been slowly piled upon for months after the original draft opinion was leaked months before finally exploded. The smoke could be seen for hundreds of miles. Upon the initial earthquakes, the aftershocks were just as telling. People, particularly those who consider themselves pro-choice, or if nothing else, pro-freedom, took to the streets. They promised a, quote, night of rage, although thankfully one never materialized. They protested in nearly every major city in America. Corporations across America came out in support of women who wanted abortions, promising to pay for their flights, lodging, and procedures should abortion rights be rescinded in their states. Justice Brett Kavanaugh, one of the six justices that supported the overturning of the 50-year decision, was almost the target of an assassination plot. The other justices were protested at their homes and ruthlessly targeted by pro-choice advocates. Regardless of your view on abortion, you have to be impressed with the sheer will of the side of the argument to uphold their views without getting raucous or violent. These people are patriots. They are standing up for something that affects them, something that they know could potentially alter their lives forever. They feel that something has been taken from them, and that they are willing to die on that hill in order to preserve their way of life. They will not be denied, because they are speaking truth to power. Or are they? Think back to our point about demographics. Look at the people who are most loud in speaking out against abortion. Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren, at a combined age of 1,020 years old, were enraged. Olivia Rodrigo, worth tens of millions of dollars, called Justices Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett mean names at one of her concerts, along with her thousands of raving fans who could afford to spend their time and money watching Olivia Rodrigo call Justice Thomas and Barrett mean names. Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, who was worth billions of dollars while hawking glorified milkshakes for $8 a pop, promised to make sure every single barista that makes said milkshakes that they could have an abortion if they just said the word. Let me start off by, with saying what I'm not saying. I am not saying that these folks are entitled to opinions on issues, especially as an issue, issue as controversial as important and important as that of abortion. But once again, demographics. No matter how much IVF treatment they get, Nancy Pelosi and Elizabeth Warren couldn't squeeze out a baby if they tried. And if I can say, I think grandmothers talking about abortion in any way is a bit tasteless. Olivia Rodrigo has access to all the care she wants due to her hard work making music. Howard Schultz, who cannot bear children in case you weren't aware, has bigger issues to deal with, most notably the fact that he has to close many of his milkshake shops in major metropolitan cities because of an absurd policy about opening up bathrooms to the public without even having to buy anything from said milkshake shop. Never before have I seen so many people who pretended to care about something be more removed from that something. There was so much talk, but so little action. The slacktivism was palpable. There was much talk about who was actually affected, but so little being done to help them. The people who abortion rights abortion affects the most, mostly poor single mothers, were heard from the least. Instead, they were tread upon and supplanted by those in power and with the least to lose from commenting on the issue. Instead, we heard a whole lot from those who had no skin in the game. A close family friend, who was a white middle-class woman at the ripe age of 15 years old, went in an Instagram rant about how she was, quote, appalled by the decision. Our friend Jason Whitlock rightly ripped people like Dave Portnoy, LeBron James, and O.J. Simpson, of all people, for weighing in. Although in O.J.'s case, it's completely and objectively better than his prior behavior. This is an improvement. It reminded me, similarly, of what the equally crazy and mostly conservative folks had to say about gun violence in the wakes of both the Uvalde and Buffalo shootings. 
Nearly all the pro-gun comments, particularly of those who had almost no restrictions, advocated for almost no restrictions or background checks, were from people who were the least affected by gun violence. These are people who have money, who live in gated communities, and pay for their own private security in their homes. They have nothing to do with the, street, with the streets in which the vast majority of gun violence occurs. But like the slacktivists who weighed in on abortion rights, this did not matter to them. Reality didn't matter to them. All that mattered to them was that they made noise on the issue, that they talked, that they appeared virtuous. And that is exactly what they are, and why the Forgotten had them. The virtuous. These people have a type. They are, usually, very privileged. They abuse their power over people in order to gain more of it. They mostly have no stake in the issue whatsoever. They're far too removed from the situation to even get a small glimpse of what the reality of the situation contains. And, above all else, they're very concerned with the opinions of other people. Their wellspring of desired power and their illusion of expertise comes strictly from their ability to extort emotional appeal from the masses. They are so obsessed with staying in the public's good graces because they know it is that reason, and that reason alone, that they are in the position that they currently occupy. But as mentioned, they need a group of people to source this appeal from. They need a people to, quote, protect, which really means rob them of their sovereignty and place them on the weak side of the toughness gap. Those people are the forgotten. They latch onto them not because they truly care for them, but because they seek an opportunity to exploit them. The forgotten have a bad habit of falling for the tactics of the virtuous. But in reality, who could blame them? After all, what the Forgotten are most upset about more than anything else is what they are aptly being named for, being forgotten. When a group of people, particularly a group of people that are in many ways in influential and powerful places as the virtuous, begin to champion them, it gives them hope. They begin to sink into their clutches once again, silently praying that this time will be different, that this time will finally begin to show that they are worth something, that this time they will finally have the decency to be heard. But they will and always will be, wrong. Because eventually, narcissism always wins. People always show you who they really are if you pay careful enough attention to them. They will always show their cards and their real face to you if you're willing to be honest with both them and yourself when they do so. And when they do so, you realize that, instead of being as virtuous as both of, us would like, both of you would like to believe, they're actually something much more disappointing. Frauds. These people are frauds. They don't care about what they claim to care about. They only care about what all narcissists only care about. Themselves. This is a tough pill to swallow, but especially by the forgotten. As said, being betrayed is one of the worst, if not the worst, emotion that you can ever feel. Whenever people slowly begin to realize that they've been duped, the knife sinks in ever so slowly that they've been lied to. This enrages the virtuous. This is the natural response whenever a willing liar gets called, on the li called out on the lie that they parrot. They don't like how the party that, is, that has been lied to will no longer conform to their false reality. They don't like how they will no longer get, in, get their way. They don't like how they are finally being held accountable and forced to do their job and make the hard decisions that go along with it to actually help the people they want to try to help. The result of this, however, is very sad. Instead of humbling themselves and reassessing the situation, the virtuous begin to do the exact opposite. They lean in harder. They start to openly condescend and talk down to the forgotten. They quickly begin to not only look down upon them, but openly hate them. While they are separated by monetary class, this is a different type of stratification. 
elitism and non-elitism have monetary components, but it's much more complex than people would have you believe. Class systems are a mindset, not necessarily and singularly determined upon money alone. That's far too simplistic of an assessment to conduct. There are a multitude of factors that have to play out, all of which we've discussed. This is how class warfare always breaks out, even if it's mostly a cold one. Eventually, the disdain of the virtuous towards the forgotten becomes so open that they take direct action to harm them. They deliberately stop attempting to fix their problems. They focus on things that don't really matter or that the people that depend on them couldn't give two shits about. They attempt to distract them with unimportant things and topics to keep them muzzled and within their control. They begin to make a mockery of their responsibility, or lack thereof, by foregoing all responsibility at all. This is why so many things in our public discourse seem so frivolous and meaningless, and why the people that are pushing them seem so stupid and unserious. It's because, on both accounts, they are. It takes two to tango. What results from that dance, as we will see, ends up being nothing less than catastrophic. Part 3. The Remainder Much has been made of what has been going on with all the things we've mentioned and the two groups that are waging against one another. In fact, when you really boil it down, that's all that's been made up of the giant events of the last quarter of a decade. We haven't stopped talking about it at all. If you do root cause, as you should with problems and groups, you will see that even though the faces of said groups change, they actually all remain the same underneath. There have been, quote, things that have been done to blunt this onslaught. Many a tech executives have been dragged in front of Congress to be lambasted by senators and House members on how awful of a person they are and how big of a piece of shit their platform is that, quote, unquote, destroying democracy. That is, quote, unquote, destroying democracy. Many a show trials have been held where similar people in similar positions of power exert their dominance by publicly embarrassing both guilty and innocent people to make a point and to make themselves feel good. Many people have been made a victim of our modern-day McCarthyism and have been canceled for their supposed sins. They've been exiled from the kingdom and forced to not return. Their lives have been destroyed, never to be the same as they once were. But there is a question that we must ask that is more broad than any one issue. This is the issue we must ask with everything that holds this much significance. It doesn't matter if it is in the public square or within the domain of our own lives. This is the central question, the essential question. The only question we must ask, particularly when there is as much a stake as the collective sanity and unity of our society, was and is it worth it? That is the question. Was it worth it to do all the things we've done? To sick both the forgotten and the virtuous onto each other and to the rest of us? Has anything gotten better? Has anything progressed or changed to the level that all of us claim to want it to? Is the necessary destruction paying off in terms of a new construction? I think we all know what the answer is. It's a resounding no. Things have not gotten worse for just gotten worse for everyone in America. They've gotten much worse, much faster than we ever thought possible. The signs are everywhere. Unless something incredibly significant happens to shift the dynamics of our sociology, we should expect them to continue. That is what remains from this conflict, from this class warfare that we've described. Because, in the end... This type of conflict never creates anything. It always destroys. Always.
Ask our friends we talked about not too long ago that participated in the French Revolution. Lots of lopped off heads and societal collapse and empire building. Not a lot of prosperity and unity. Talk about a ripoff. However, this is not the root cause of the problem. It's a distraction. The actual problem, the one that both the forgotten and the virtuous refuse to acknowledge or go near like the plague, is the atrocious lack of self-awareness that each group possesses. And that is the key to understanding most problems. Usually, it's not the other person's fault, at least in totality. If you think that's when something you're involved in goes really wrong and you're completely unblemished, then you're probably much more of a part of the problem than you think. Let's go over each side's role in this lack of self-awareness in turn. The forgotten never look at themselves because they're too busy victimizing themselves. They're never to blame because they're always the ones getting the shit end of the stick. Always the ones that are never culpable in their own endgame. Always the ones that never have control over their lives. All of these things, for the most part, are completely disprovable and false, because all human beings are sovereign people that can problem-solve. But due to the Kool-Aid that they've guzzled and the entitlement to victimhood they've gotten drunk on, they can never truly see with their eyes wide open. The virtuous never look at themselves because they're too afraid to call themselves out on their own bullshit. This is because they're in a position of immense responsibility, but take no responsibility. They're living a lie. They're not telling the truth to both the people they are supposed to be serving and to themselves. They're high on their own supply and drunk off their own power. They cannot see that what they're, they're doing is bigger than them. They cannot see that they're supposed to be an example. They cannot see that they need to actually, you know, do something to earn their virtue. Not just talk about it and shame the people to look at them for answers when they call them out on their fuckery. Because their influence is so massive, their negligence to both their constituents and their duties harms everyone in an insidious ripple effect. What this shitstorm ends up embodying is a vicious cycle of a completely narcissism-driven blame game. No one wants to take responsibility, so they project their own lack of responsibility onto one another. And, when there is no one to take responsibility for something that needs tended to, that thing, naturally, goes untended. The problem grows. It gets bigger, more burdensome, and more difficult to manage. Soon, those problems begin to appear unmanageable. This makes everyone, understandably so, more angry and stressed out. People see that the monster in their closet that we mentioned earlier can no longer fit, so they amplify their narcissism and lack of responsibility by outwardly lashing out in vicious ways at the, quote, opposition. You can see where this leads, because it only leads to one thing. Destruction. But there is a hidden component to this that undergirds everything as well. Responsibility, while being a necessary and highly meaningful part of life, perhaps the most meaningful part in life, always carries that something that no one, most especially an incredibly narcissistic and prideful person, ever likes to talk about. Fear. This is the true reason why this happens. No one ever wants to go deeper, to get to the root cause of any one issue because everyone is so afraid of being held responsible. Responsibility, while a meaningful thing, is a very tough thing to take control of. No one wants to fail, particularly in something that matters. Everyone fears responsibility because everyone fears failure. People may refuse to admit it, but they do. I do. You do. We all do. Additionally, there is a very compelling and strong reputational risk that comes with taking responsibility. No one ever wants to be labeled the bad guy or the person at fault, no matter what that thing is. When people are put on the spot to produce this in, in this capacity, they have a tendency to freeze up. Nothing ever gets done because no one wants to be the reason why people suffer. And this is the burden of responsibility. 
It is a heavy one, but it is a necessary one. On the flip side, being the victim is much easier. Being, quote, wronged by people on the outside of your control is a much more appealing maneuver to take in life than actually taking ownership of it. There's no consequences that comes with being a victim. There is only pity and the feeling all, all the feel-good emotions come with being pitied. But I believe that we all know that no one truly wants this. People want to be able to feel proud of themselves and that they work to achieve something based on their own merit. No one likes to be looked upon as a liability. No one likes when people don't think that they can contribute. No one likes to be looked at as a simple Klingon. No one wants to be any of these things. But yet, when faced with the alternative, it is the one that people always revert to. In the end, what the remainder is, is a bunch of people who can't do anything. We're disabling ourselves. We never want to take ownership of fixing an issue. So we perpetuate that responsibility onto a similar group of people who take a similar lack of responsibility towards the same thing. It doesn't make any sense at all. But that's what happens when we live in a society that shirks strength for weakness and responsibility for victimhood. The remainder of the conflict between the forgotten and the virtuous is a perpetual state of nihilistic misery. No one has any belief that things get better because we see no options for people to bear that burden. All we see is people projecting their own feelings of entitlement and narcissism onto other people. We don't see people who are competent and, stu and strong. We see people that are stupid and weak. And they're not wrong. Only stupid and weak people engage in actions like these. These are not the actions of a healthy society. They are the actions of a dysfunctional clusterfuck. Sadder still, this problem will continue. The remainder will keep being of this breed until people start growing balls and fixing the shit that everyone complains about all the time. We don't need any more people who create bad situations to legitimate problems. We need people who are going to be weight bearers. We need people who are going to inspire people to do the same. We don't need more people disabling themselves than entitlement and a seemingly insatiable desire to do nothing when something needs to be done. That is what we need. But until we get that, our problems will stay with us. The forgotten will still feel forgotten. The virtuous will still feel virtuous. The remainder will still be bleak and depressing. And the most depressing part will still be that no one will have the self-awareness to acknowledge their role in any of it. The adoption of responsibility is the most painfully necessary thing humans can do to help other humans. The shirking of responsibility is the most painfully unnecessary thing humans can do to help other humans. Self-awareness, as always, is the cure to knowing what problems need to be solved and what we can do to help solve them. The knowledge that while not everything is your fault, but everything is your responsibility, when widely adopted, would blunt many of the ills our society faces. However, when not done so, it is a surefire way to unleash them and all their horrors onto any and everyone that participates in it particularly those of cocaine, prescription pills, and subprime mortgages. Please stay away from those. Okay, everybody, that is the podcast for this week. So that was uh, a referendum on just kind of generalized responsibility, all that type of good stuff. We love responsibility here. We really love it. And I think that we would be wise to do more of it no matter who we are and what role we take in society. So, again, look at yourself. Be self-aware. It's the antidote to so many problems, I promise you. But in the meantime, I have things to do. You have things to do. Thank you for spending 45 minutes of your, me, or of your day with me on a Sunday. And as always, own the day, open your mind. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Ah, thanks. <laughs>
stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?